This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So lovely to see see so many so many faces. Thank you very much for coming today, uh, for taking the time to sit if you were able to sit before the talk. And uh, I guess I would say that my encouragement in uh, coming to a Dharma talk is to sit during the Dharma talk. And I will start by also saying that whatever, uh, whatever I say, may it be of benefit. And if anything I say is not of benefit, you can please just let it go. Actually, let all of it go. So today, uh, September 18th, happens to be the uh, anniversary of my ordination as a priest. It has been, I think, 17 years that I have been um, being a priest full time <laughs> and have uh, uh, taken up the practice of the question, what does it mean to practice? What does it mean to show up and how how to let go of what maybe let go of and welcome all things as they arise and pass. When I, um, early on in my practice at San Francisco Zen Center, I remember seeing the quote and the quote, which is now on our front door. We had a resident a few years ago who created the sign. I'm not sure if, uh, for those of you who've never been to the front door, the sign says, it's a kind of a fanzine <clears throat> representation of uh, Suzuki Roshi's face. And I think the, the face that's on there is the face that's in the back of the Zen Mind Beginner's Mind cover. You can see his little elusive smile. <clears throat> and then it says, uh, there's a paraphrase of a quote, it says, when you are you, Zen is Zen. And as an early practitioner, I remember this question, the question of who am I anyway? What is this, this body and mind and all the causes and conditions kind of tied up in this package, seemingly substantial thing called me, right? Who is that? And how painful that question can be sometimes. Sometimes not painful, sometimes, you know, we come up with, uh, we think about it. And I, I think I've mentioned this in other Dharma talks. I think I was kind of obsessed with the question of identity. I remember as a young child, when I used to keep a journal, I remember having these, uh, like writing the question at the top of the page of my journal, who am I? And then I would like think about it <laughs> and write down like, well, I'm this and I'm that and I'm not this. And it's like the kind of, uh, trying to get at something through thinking about it was very much uh, a huge part of my experience as a child. Not just who am I, but how do I know? How do I know anything to be true? 
So when I started practicing at the, um, I had been meditating for years in a, in another tradition in a, doing some transcendental meditation, which I found I really took to as a young, you know, high school student. And then when I came to Zen and, um, starting with the San Francisco Zen Center really is where I landed after exploring many different uh, styles of Buddhism. I remember feeling like I had um, in some ways come home. There was, there was something mysterious about going to, going to the Zendo and sitting, all these people sitting quietly, mostly facing a wall and as I kind of dipped my toe in, I, I started pretty, I think maybe gradually at first, but then after doing a one day sit, I was hooked. <laughs> and um, something about the question, who am I, became less, there was an opening of less trying to figure something out and more something about being curious about the mystery without trying to nail it down. In my path towards ordination, uh, you know, after that first one day sit, I just knew I wanted to, to practice more. And I'm not sure of the causes and conditions that went into, uh, wanting something there was some deep yearning something that i wanted to discover about who i was in the world who i was in relationship to others but as i continued to practice and became deeper and deeper in uh involved in in this uh aspiration there's strong aspiration to dive in and actually this question of who am I became it turned more to what can I let go of in terms of my ideas of myself and then uh, as I continued studying reading sutras and fascicles I loved studying and uh, integrating what I was studying into how I was living my life. The, the feeling of wanting to vow, wanting as uh, sometimes described, I think Linda Ruth describes this often as plunging, plunging into vow of completely letting go of anything that's not in service of waking up. Waking up to what? To the true self? To the selfless self? For me, the um, when I went to Tassajara, I was going to say for the first time, but it's actually, I, I went to Tassajara and I stayed there and then I left. So but when I went to Tassajara as a new student, I was, I remember reading the, um, uh, the Tenzo Kyokun, and 
there's a story in the Tenzo Kyokun and um, where the where Dogen is traveling to China and in his travels, he comes across uh, a monk in the fields picking or, or setting out mushrooms to dry in the sun. And it's very hot and the monk is old. He's got a bent back and he's putting out these mushrooms and Dogen asks the question, you know, what are you doing in this hot sun? And the Tenzo, this is a, the monk who's a Tenzo says, well, I'm drying these mushrooms. And Dogen says, but it's so hot out. And aren't there younger monks who can do this work? And the Tenzo says, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And I took this story in my enthusiasm and exuberance at wanting to jump in and completely give over to practice. I think I took this story and um, it really resonated with me. And it became kind of a one of many guiding stories. And for those of you who have entered into concentrated practice, especially within a temple system, I know there's a few of you in the room who have done so. There's a lot of, um, you know, when you start off, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking very fondly of Pat, who's now sitting Tangario at Tassajara for the first time she's entered the monastery. And as a new student, you really have no responsibilities other than following the schedule. You just show up. And it's an amazing gift to do that because all of the other concerns that may or may not arise, you allow them to just drop away because your responsibility is just to be there, just to be present. And when the bell rings, you get up. And when lunch is served, you eat. And when it's exercise bath time, you exercise and bathe. And the densho rings and you walk to the zendo for service. And the fire watch comes and, and hits the clackers and it's time to turn the lights out. And you do this. You put yourself into this container. And it's not necessarily easy. It's going to be really excruciatingly hard, actually. But something about putting oneself into that container and seeing what happens, it's like a cauldron. And so for me, as a new student, I took to that quite well. And I think I had ideas about, in, my, in all my kind of questioning of who am I, I really had an idea that I was kind of a slacker. <laughs> and, um, you know, not particularly hardworking, preferring to sort of goof off rather than work diligently. That's kind of where I was as a, you know, as a young kid and as a teenager and maybe through college. Or <laughs> and then something, when I went to Tassajara, in this cauldron, something emerged that was just this aspiration to plunge in and really uh, let go of my ideas and conceptions and see what ar arose. Now, as you continue, oftentimes continuing in practice, after your first practice period where you have zero responsibilities other than showing up, 
we start being given responsibilities. <laughs> Look at Bruce. <laughs> he, he's nodding. He's like, yeah. Well, something about being given responsibilities really enlivened me. Maybe in the past, my, my slacker ways were um, not necessarily uh, turning away from responsibilities, but maybe maybe people just didn't give me m many responsibilities. I mean, I had chores, I had things that I was supposed to do, um, expectations, very strong, high expectations, I will say, maybe, looking back, high expectations that I do well in school, that I, you know, keep my room clean, you know, things like that. But as I continued in my practice, I kept being given more and more responsibilities. And I thrived. I loved being responsible. <laughs> For some, some reason, something um, became very alive for me in those responsibilities. And I had other stories besides the Tenzo mushroom story. The images of bodhisattvas that appear in all realms Particularly for me, what was intriguing was the bodhisattvas that appeared in realms that no one wants to go to, namely the hungry ghost realm, the realm where uh, lack, feelings of lack, feelings of not enough, not being able to get nourishment, the hell realm where suffering is so great that maybe in modern psychological terms, the limbic system has seized up and, <laughs> and the, you know, your frontal cortex stops working and you're in fight, flight, freeze mode, or maybe not even, maybe it's even beyond that. The hell realm is one where it's just pure, pure suffering. And the Bodhisattva appears in each of these realms to help beings. And I saw that uh, as my path. The aspiration to be able to enter into any realm and not turn away, but to allow and witness and be compassionate to what's arising that became an aspiration as well. I think all of you can relate to this, this wish that we have for ourselves when we hear about the gift of fearlessness. We think, maybe I can be fearless too. Maybe fearlessness is within reach. I want to be of benefit. I want to save all beings. I want to wake up. Not just for this one, this one that is actually completely, inextricably connected or is all beings. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this. <laughs> But I wanted to talk about the, I wanted to unpack this question of what does it mean when you are you? 
looking back, I, I certainly saw my own grappling with the question of who am I and the way I went about it. Uh, maybe I still do this, trying to define, trying to, um, I don't know, make sense of, In our practice, we we work with and sit with our own karma, the choices that we made, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, how we bring forth uh, our own being moment after moment, and how that's completely beginningless and endless. So trying to untangle the tangle, this conundrum became my focus. And how, how one goes about that though, is so there's so many different ways. And what ways when we go about this question, just even if it's just a simple question of, hey, this thing in my life is not working so well, what should I do about it? is a trap. What should, should, the should, <laughs> what should I do? I need to do something. The energy of trying to solve a problem, trying to wrangle with, maybe even trying to manipulate, right? The other day, uh, Maida and Jess and I were talking in the office and the question came up, Maida, as many of you may know, she's a dog trainer. And, um, and so she works quite, quite uh, for many years, she's worked with, um, you know, this question of what does it mean to be trained? <laughs> and she asked this, she was watching a, uh, she had watched a, a, a training video from one of her dog trainer mentors. She came in and asked Jess and I the question, she's like, you're Buddhists. <laughs> What do you think about this thing called resilience? What is this resilience and can resilience be trained? And she mentioned some theories that you're born with a particular amount of resilience and maybe you can, you know, expand it a little bit or it gets contracted a little bit. But that, you know, there's some theory that it's uh, you're kind of born with the resilience that you you're born with and that doesn't change so much. And I think both Jess and I were like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> and, um, and thinking about it, we got into the, you know, this topic of like, you know, the numerous um, kind of self-help offerings that are out there to like, you know, become more resilient, you know, follow my five-step way to increase your resilience and how so many of those ways are coming at something as a problem that needs to be solved and needs to be fixed and generating what we might call coping mechanisms. And there's something about practice that kind of turns that all around. Sitting Zazen, 
what is sitting zazen? And when you become you, zazen becomes zazen. What does that mean? How do we experience that in our own life? When we sit zazen, are we looking for something? Are we expecting something? Are we maybe just hoping for or wishing for something to become more settled, to become um, more confident in our being? Are we using zazen to gain something? And I would say that most of us at some point, that's what, you know, why else would I go sit zazen if I didn't think it was going to make me better? <laughs> right? Oh, this is good for me. I need to do this. Just like I need to, you know, do other kinds of exercise, keep my mind engaged, keep my body active. Right? I'm going to sit zazen in order to uh, become something maybe that I'm not. To increase my resilience. <laughs> and this is a trap. So when you become you, how are you not yourself all the time? How am I not myself? Are you all familiar with that feeling sometimes where you feel like I'm not myself or this is not who I am? It's very, it can be very painful. Maybe not. Maybe it's something surprising and you feel like, oh, look at that. I didn't realize that I had that in me. That was a, you know, a snappy response. <laughs> and then you can feel proud about yourself or, or maybe more often than not, it's um, something's not working the way it used to, like your knees, <laughs> like your back, like your brain like your emotions. And then we're thrown when things are not going the way they, you know, that we expect them to do to go, especially when it feels like there's a loss of something, a loss of our, um, our recall memory, a loss of a skill that we haven't been honing, a loss of a friendship of a relationship. And then we think there's something, you know, something's wrong. When you become you, Zazen becomes Zazen. I asked Kokyo yesterday, where, where in Suzuki Roshi does he say this? And we had a, you know, a short conversation about it. And I uh, found the fascicle, the fascicle, the Dharma talk, where he, uh, Suzuki Roshi, speaks of a particular koan, and in particular, Dogen's um, commentary on the koan. The koan most of you are familiar with, I uh, expect. Many, many times we have uh, spoken of this koan. The koan of Matsu polishing, uh, sitting zazen, and his teacher, Nanyue, comes along and says, what are you doing? Maybe Matsu was sitting diligently. Maybe maybe Nanyue could see some something something in his zazen that felt like he wanted to ask about it. What's going on with you? So Nanyue asks Matsu, "What are you What are you doing there? Or or what are you doing these days? 
actually, I think in the in the original, Matsu is not sitting zazen. He's just at his in his hut. He's standing, and Nanyue comes to visit and asks him this question: "What are you up to these days?" And Matsu says, "Well, these days, Doitsu, meaning himself, just sits zazen." And Nanyue asks, "What do you think you're doing by sitting zazen?" And Matsu replies, becoming a Buddha. I'm sitting Zazen to become Buddha. And then Nanyue in his uh, playful way, maybe, turns and picks up a, a little, like a roof tile, that's ceramic tile that's lying on the ground. And he sits down and starts kind of rubbing it against a rock. <laughs> and Matsu says, Master, what are you doing now? Nanyue replies, Well, I'm, uh, I'm polishing this tile to make a mirror. Matsu is confused. How is that possible? And he asks him, How can you make a mirror from polishing this tile? To which Nanyue replies, How can you become a Buddha by sitting zazen? Koto Sawaki Roshi uh, is famous for his Zazen is good for nothing. Um, many, many different uh, uh, ways that he describes this. But in his early life, uh, I was reading a biography of Koto Sawaki. So apparently very competitive and very diligent and um, kind of really wanted to throw himself into practice. And at one point, I think his first teacher, he um, is a very similar story, but he was intent on attaining enlightenment through Zazen. He was so um, motivated. He did everything that he thought would be he could to attain enlightenment. And his teacher, well, I guess probably the first person he considered to be his teacher, Fueoka, asked him what the reason was for such intensity. Apparently, Kodosawaki was sitting zazen while the other monks were resting or studying <laughs> or playing about. And Sawaki just sat zazen and had a certain intensity. And of course, so when, when he was asked by his teacher, what was the reason for such you know, such an intensity in his in his sitting. He says, because I want to attain Satori. Fuoka said, I love this quote, you're like someone with a piece of shit on his nose running around wondering who's farted. <laughs> and thus, Sakoto Soaki in that was a, you know, I think he was, that was an early, early Kodosaki. I think he was probably about 18 when he was studying under this teacher before he was drafted into the military and had to serve and then went to the Russo-Japanese War. <laughs> so many years went by where practicing Zazen was not on his schedule so much. And then emerging from that, 
through his uh, teachings, he started to speak about Zazen as actually as having absolutely no value whatsoever in the sense of progress or benefit or what he called paybacks. Why? He said, because it takes you Zazen, the practice of Zazen takes you out of the world of loss and gain. Because of that, it should be practiced. Mushotoku, no gaining mind, no gaining idea. So in my life, I thought I was practicing no gaining idea. And yet somehow, gaining idea keeps slipping in. Wanting to do a good job, wanting to succeed. Turns out that I am quite averse to failure. <laughs> as I think many of us are, uh, it's almost like I have a part within myself that was born. I don't know when. I don't, yeah, it's uh, reflecting on this. Uh, I can't pinpoint it. But at some point, failure just became like, that's just not an option. And I think I think looking back, I think I used some of the Zen stories to bolster that view, to bolster the view of being the Bodhisattva fearlessly entering into hell realms, of taking on responsibilities uh, wholeheartedly. I wanted to live wholeheartedly, right? So taking on the responsibilities I didn't create responsibilities. I don't think I created responsibilities where they weren't there. I think it was just, you know, when you're practicing, especially practicing in a monastery like Tassajara, you're given a, a, a role for the, you know, the duration of the practice period or maybe for a full year or several years. You're, you know, and, and to go into each of those roles for me, I can't think of a role that I had that I didn't at some, in some ways just love right? Maybe that created a certain um, meaning for me, or a, I don't think I really thought about it as like, oh, you know, it wasn't a pride thing, maybe. But I think maybe it was an arrogance thing. <laughs> you know, when you're given a role, and it's, uh, it becomes really important that you do it well. For those of you who have uh, taken up Dawn Rio positions at you know, at the Austin Zen Center or elsewhere, you may know what this is like. Like suddenly you're asked to do something. Here, would you please ring the bells? Would you please strike the Han? Would you please carry the incense or sift the ash or, uh, Buddha forbid, lead the chanting? <laughs> One of the most, uh, I don't know, kind of scary positions of like being the chant leader because your voice is out there when everyone else is quiet. And sometimes when you are given this role, you know, not everyone's, you know, takes on these roles as if they're super important. They're just like, okay, here, here I'm doing this thing. <laughs> but for those of us who <laughs> are really serious about like, you know, getting it right, <laughs> not failing, right? 
it can get really, uh, we get, we come up face to face with our ideas about who we are, who we think we are, whether we're good enough, whether we're worthy enough, right? Whether we can do a good job, we become hyper-focused as we're learning a new role. You can become hyper-focused and in like, I got to do it right. And you're like counting like the, the seconds between your strikes on the Han and you're like super focused. But like if somebody walks by and they, they need something, you're like, go away. Uh, Linda Ruth, I think, uh, told a story once where she was, it was her first time being Shoten at the city center, which is the position where she was ringing the Densho, the bell, the big bell, it, to call people to the Zendo for service. And she was diligently holding the mallet and, and breathing and trying to be very present with the bell. And Suzuki Roshi walks by and <laughs> bows to her. And she was a new student. She didn't necessarily know who he was. And she said she felt annoyed. <laughs> who is this guy <laughs> who's interrupting my concentrated practice? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I think all of us have been there where we think we're doing one thing and it becomes so narrow and we become constricted and constrained in, I have to do this this way, I have to do it right, such that we blot out or don't allow in actual reality what's happening now. So in this story of Matsu and his teacher, Nanyue, right after this exchange, I'm going to read the piece of what Dogen wrote on this in his uh, fascicle called Kokyo, Eternal Mirror. He says, for several hundred years since ancient times, most people interpreting this story, great matter that it is, have thought that Nangaku was simply spurring Basho on, so Nanyue and Matsu. That is not necessarily so. The actions of great saints far transcends the states of common folk. Without the dharma of polishing a tile, how could the great, <clears throat> the great saints have any expedient method of teaching people. The power to teach people is the bones and marrow of a Buddhist ancestor. Although Nanyue has devised it, this teaching method is a common tool. Teaching methods other than common tools and everyday utensils are not transmitted in the house of Buddha. Further, the impression on Matsu is immediate. Clearly, the virtue authentically transmitted by the Buddhist ancestors is directness. Clearly, in truth, when polishing a tile becomes a mirror, Matsu becomes Buddha. When Matsu becomes Buddha, Matsu immediately becomes Matsu. When Matsu becomes Matsu, Zazen immediately becomes Zazen. This is why the making of mirrors through the polishing of tiles has been dwelt in and retained in the bones and marrow of eternal Buddhas. And this being so, the eternal mirror exists 
having been made from a tile. Ah, uh, Dogen. So the end of the story is not, you idiot, how are you supposed to <laughs> become a Buddha when you're <laughs> by sitting Zazen? When we go to Zazen in order to gain something, when we practice diligently with a feeling of attaining something, of gaining mind, we miss something really crucial, actually. Later on in the in the fascicle, Dogen says, in general, we polish a mirror to make it into a mirror. We polish a tile to make it into a mirror. We polish a tile to make it into a tile. And we polish a mirror to make it into a tile. There are times when we polish without making anything. There are times when it would be possible to make something, but we are unable to polish it. All equally are the traditional work of Buddhist ancestors. So it's not that Zazen, sitting Zazen, is not worthwhile true practice. It's how we go about it. It's what we, uh, what we carry into it. When you become you, what does that mean to be completely you? as I'm discovering and have discovered and have to relearn over and over and over, it seems. I'm like, uh, I'm like the, the horse that doesn't go until the, you know, it hits the marrow. <laughs> Zazen isn't about getting anywhere. It's about being right here, right now including everything in the universe, which for one person's body and mind and experience maybe uh, is, can't, it actually can't exclude anything in one's own karma. I think many of us have the experience when we sit zazen sometimes of uh, pure bliss and light, levity, spaciousness. And then other times when sitting zazen, you feel like you can't, yeah, you're, you just kind of want to crawl out of your own skin. Can't stand this. I can't stand it. Is one zazen good zazen and the other zazen bad zazen? It's so easy to fall into that trap of thinking it's so. Oh, that was a terrible period of zazen. I didn't get settled. I couldn't even count to three before I started thinking about this and worrying about that. And is that bad zazen? Oh, I had a really good zazen period. That was great. The bell rang and I was just, uh, I felt like I had just, you know, been in a bliss realm the entire time. <laughs> no good, no bad Zazen. We may have preferences. 
right? Those preferences are what we sit with. And because everything changes, we get to see that shifting. When you become you, it means you being now. What is you? What is me right now in this breath? It's not a matter of a technique. It's so simple, actually. It's so simple. It's just, it's not a matter of bringing anything in. It's letting everything go. So it's not that the, the thoughts of, oh, I'm not good enough, or, oh, I'm so wonderful. <laughs> it's not like you need to get rid of those thoughts. Those thoughts, you know, for those of you who have tried, <laughs> you know, you can't get rid of thoughts. They come, they go. In our lives, we can't get rid of our life and our experiences. We may try. This is where we sign up for, you know, <laughs> how to increase my resilience in three steps. We may, you know, we may try to develop new coping techniques. And again, I don't think that this, uh, I don't think that this, that Nanyue is saying, you know, don't try things and see their effects. Don't experiment. That's not what he's saying. It's like, what is the mind that comes to uh, the present moment? What do we bring to that moment? And when we sit, can we stand it? Can we allow it to just be there? Oftentimes, uh, especially when we're pressed, we're crunched, we're uh, pushing up against a deadline, maybe it's our own, maybe it's imposed on us. You may notice the tendency to become constrained, constricted in the body. And when we come to our cushion, we don't even need a cushion. You know, when you're wherever you are, to come back to this moment, all of it, without excluding anything. You just, it's not even a matter of paying attention. I mean, it, some people times you say, you know, you have to pay attention to the body and to the breath and to the skandhas, pay attention to mental states, right? Maybe a better way of saying it is instead of just like listening to the body, it's, it's like listening in the body. It's a slight difference there. Listening to the body separates it. There's me and there's my body. Maybe listening in the body, listening with the body and the breath and the mind. I think I want to end with, uh, with saying um, for my own practice, 
it's been uh, this this last few months, years, last year plus of being in these weird conditions of uh, uh, feeling so cut off from the one body of community, the one body of practice. Um, I've really appreciated seeing people when I do in person. I really appreciate seeing people as two-dimensional representations on my screen. And yet I yearn, I wish so much to be in person as that one body and struggle with uh, the feeling of uh, something's off here. I don't know. I've, uh, you know, as a, as a young child, I think I was pretty uh, confident, maybe overconfident, definitely uh, felt like I was kind of a, uh, you know, super resilient. I remember thinking one time uh, in a class on the problem of evil, I think, <laughs> I had a professor who described like the, the uh, having a vase that, that, you know, this idea of, of uh, sorry, let me back up, this feeling of throwing oneself into an experience with a trust, maybe with a trust that, you know, oh, I'll be okay. This will be good learning experience for me. <laughs> and sometimes, uh, so this professor, when we were discussing this, this kind of uh, the way in which we can throw ourselves in to an experience, um, maybe with a little bit of arrogance or maybe a lot of arrogance, he likened this to, you know, you having a, having a vase, you know, maybe a, because he was a classic scholar, like an ancient vase that you have and you kind of knock against it and then it breaks and you can put it back together. He's like, yeah, what doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily always make you stronger. <laughs> and that's a lesson that I think I'm still learning. <laughs> As, uh, as I go through the change, many of you have gone through the change or are going through the change for, for those of you who've never heard of this change, uh, women will go through <laughs> this change. And uh, I've been going through that change and it's been a, <laughs> it's been a doozy. Uh, who am I in this change? things that I used to rely on are no longer reliable. In fact, nothing's actually reliable. No, no compounded thing, no constructed thing, meaning my body is reliable. This body uh, has limits. My emotional well-being has limits. Limits that I think I have uh, chronically pushed aside in my life. And now <laughs> it's like they're coming home to roost. So I feel it in my, uh, in my body. And 
the aversion that can come up is what I sit with, that I want to turn away from, that I want to escape, that I wake up sometimes thinking in a panic, this is, this is not me. <laughs> Who is this person who's suddenly like having a panic attack? I've never had a panic attack before. But then like, well, what's happening now? And instead of turning away from it, instead of trying to, maybe not instead, I mean, it makes sense that if something's wrong with your, feels like it's wrong with your body because of maybe just natural aging, that we think there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with this. And we go to the doctor and we say, doctor, <laughs> you know, I've got this thing that's just when I move my leg in this way, it, you know, it hurts. You know, this joke, right? The doctor says, well, then don't, <laughs> don't move it in that way. He's like, no, how do I continue to be who I think I am without these hindrances? <laughs> oh, this is the human struggle. And how we relate to it, how do we welcome it, turning towards it as a teacher? It certainly doesn't feel like it when you're in the throes of suffering. The last thing you want is to welcome this pain or this failing, what feels like a failing, what feels like a loss. The last thing we want to do is to welcome it. Actually, we're going to go through our usual strategies to try to get away from feeling that awful feeling. But when we, uh, maybe even best to be mindless, when we mindlessly drag this sack of bones and blood and pus and synovic fluid, <laughs> when we drag our bodies to the cushion, we sit down in the midst of all of it. We give ourselves that gift, not necessarily pleasant or unpleasant. And when we are allowing all of this to happen, because we don't have a choice, actually, now we can squirm and struggle and wiggle around and you know what that's like. There's a, uh, I was thinking the image of the, you all know the, the, the thing that's called a Chinese finger trap. I was looking, I was trying to figure out where, where did this come from? And I read something that I don't think is true. <laughs> it said something like Lao Tzu used this to like punish his, <laughs> the prisoners of war. It's like, I don't know if that's true. But <laughs> the Chinese finger trap is like this bamboo woven uh, tube. And you, you know, if you put your fingers in it, and you try to get out of it, you know, you try to pull your fingers out, it just tightens on your fingers. That's a great, great uh, image of how sometimes we are with our own struggles, right? We try to squirm and wiggle and we just pull harder and it just grabs on tighter. So when you find your, your body and mind in that finger trap, in the body-mind trap of bamboo tightening at every movement that you make, 
what can you do but give over? I mean, you can struggle. We do. Eventually, we exhaust ourselves with our struggling. And things become, uh, you know, so challenging that we just need to sit down and breathe. Listening with the body. So when you become you, becomes you, or when it, what does it look like for you to become you? Is to turn towards what's happening now without excluding any of it, especially maybe the things that we really, really, really want to exclude, the things we think, this does not belong here. This feeling of uh, ache or this feeling there's something wrong and I need to fix it. It's like, if that's what we're doing, how do we turn to that? Ah, there I go again. That is the human condition of living in samsara. Breathing in, allowing it to just be there. Breathing out, maybe it passes, maybe it doesn't. Maybe the next breath in, you feel it again. So what happens when you allow you to be you? I think that's all I have for this morning, but I'm interested in hearing any uh, comments or questions. Ah, Dave. Yes. Hello. Hello. Um, I have many thoughts. <laughs> First of all, I um, was thinking thinking so much about Toro and how she's going through her, I believe it's called an ordination. Dharma uh, what is it? A Dharma transmission. Dharma sorry. transmission. And um, as I was thinking about Toro, I really just overcome with um, gratitude for her willingness to choose a path of benefiting humanity. And I really feel like you're speaking to that. And so for you to talk about your kind of 17 years of that, of choosing that path, I'm again overcome with gratitude. Thank you for choosing that path. Thank you. There's nothing about our society that says that's a successful path. I think a capitalist society doesn't generally say that's a successful path. And yet, how much have I benefited from? How much has our Sangha benefited from you and the residents and from Toro? So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Dave. I want to expand that to how much have all of us benefited from every person who has ever just sat down and turned inward. Um, one other thought. Yeah. Um, so um, 
in a previous life, I was a jazz musician and um, worked with a circle of musicians in Chicago for about 10 years. And in particular, one bass player who played together two, three nights a week for almost 10 years. And um, we listened to each other for 10 years. And um, in very uh, kind of deep, nonverbal um, ways. And um, I had a great experience um, in June when I went back to Chicago um, for a family event. Um, I played with, with my friend, uh, bass player, and we hadn't played together for 15 years. And um, we did a little recording. And what I experienced was nothing changed. Or I won't say nothing changed. I will say our communication and understanding and connection had almost gotten more in that 15-year absence. So in the, in the regard of what didn't change is that we were being in the moment together in really beautiful musical ways. So that didn't change, and it, in, but in many ways it got more. And as I, I feel like oftentimes I'm listening to you improvise in these um, Dharma talks. And here again, I'm overcome with gratitude. I'm so grateful to hear you improvise about your experience. And I hope that I'm lucky enough to hear you improvise for 10 years, like I've listened to my music friends. And that over those years, it will permeate me. It will, um, it will become part of me. And, um, and it is, it's fascinating that it is kind of a nonverbal transmission, even though we're doing it in a verbal format. Um, but please keep talking about polishing the tile. I heard it for a different time today. I've heard it, I heard it in a different way today, even though I've heard you probably talk about it four or five times. And please keep talking about when Zen becomes Zen, you become you. And please keep referencing that picture on the door. And um, because every time it's a little different and um, your, your experience and your improvisation, if you will, there's something about the freeness of that, the um, unplanned nature of it, maybe the honesty of it in that regard, that it, it permeates more maybe like I experienced as a musician. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I think that uh, improvisation, there's a great book called, I think it's called Improv. It's like a, it's like a Zen book. It's not really about Zen, but it's a Zen book. <laughs> but it's like uh, play, you know, entering into, into the moment without any agenda other than to just be, just to play in the, that field. And so it doesn't surprise me that you were able to, to enter into that play with your friend, even after not having had a, a jam session for so long. Yeah, thank you. Jose? 
Hi, Marco. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, uh, especially um, uh, as someone who also uh, understands, uh, you know, this question of who am I really, uh, especially uh, in light of, uh, you know, my own mind uh, undergoing changes in my life um, and uh, uh, asking myself the question, well, really, like, who am I now? Um, and so, uh, so, so being able to hear your talk today was, uh, was really great uh, in that respect. Um, I was uh, perhaps picking things apart too much uh, in my mind, but uh, I was getting stuck on this uh, notion of you becoming you. Um, <laughs> and to me, it seems like a transformation of, or at least it's hinting at some sort of transformation where you're, uh, you're sitting down and you're trying to drop all gaining ideas. You're trying to sit with the whole universe. Um, and, uh, uh, and then somehow you become you, you become, uh, yourself as well as someone else at the same time. Uh, I, I'm trying to pick all that stuff apart. Um, but, uh, uh, but, uh, is that, is that a way, is that a valid way of looking at it or is this dangerous territory? I think, you know, what came to my mind just now is Yoda. <laughs> there is no try. <laughs> <laughs> Great Zen master. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's so you know so simple, and yet it's so easy to veer off into trying to manip trying to trying to maximize our gains or play the system or manipulate the circumstances. And so it's that's why I was saying it's like it's less about doing anything and more about letting go of the doing right? mm. what about letting go of that and uh and then in, in terms of like this question of like how can i not be myself how can i not be how can you not be you right but we we pile things on when we sit and we're not in the present we're usually you know uh there and then <laughs> not here and now mm. And that that's the you know that's the separation we're very good at doing that separation so we're off somewhere not here and now but there and then and it's such a, you know whether it's past or future right when you're involved in past and future you're not here and now right one thing i um also i, I wanted to mention this 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 feeling of settledness in you being you. There's a story that, um, and many of you know, the story of the st a student when Suzuki Roshi was nearing the end of his life and was bedridden. There was a student who went to visit him in his uh, in his quarters at San Francisco Zen Center, and the student went to visit him and saw him, you know, Suzuki Roshi lying in bed, looking, you know, extremely weak discolored skin like he was close to death and when the student walks in he said he bowed and suzuki roshi returned the bow and maybe because he saw the feeling of the look of concern on the student's face he said this so the student relating the story he said he looked right at me suzuki roshi looked right at him and said not in a loud voice but very firmly don't grieve for me don't worry, I know who I am. That story is really powerful to me. Like, you know, 
that maybe that's that yearning of like when how do i how do i become me <laughs> how do i become me to the point where actually grief and worry can be let go of there's nothing to grieve there's nothing to worry it is what it is it's very matter of fact right that phrase i know who i am it's not like I have an idea of who I am and it checks out when I do my little calculus, <laughs> right? It's like, I know who I am is not about, actually, it's not about anything. It's just presence. Really deep presence, an all-inclusive presence, which I would say, you know, when you think of something as like, well, that's not me, right? Like, oh, these weird, you know, this weird, phenomenon of QAnon or something, right? It's like, you know, the feeling of a, like, I don't know, I'm just confessing for myself. I feel aversion. <laughs> I feel like, wow, that's bonkers or, you know, what have you. But it's like, actually, that is me. This is, you know, everything that's happening in the universe is, is you know, all right here. And to try to separate something out of it is to fall into uh this feelings of you know trying to navigate gain and loss interestingly blanche uh blanche roshi zenke roshi uh told a story she talks she tells a story about suzuki roshi where you know she says you know normally i'm pretty pretty hard on myself i kind of you know beat myself up over things but after a particular one day sit I was feeling pretty good about myself and my zazen. <laughs> and she said she went to Suzuki Roshi and she said, so I was able to count every breath. <laughs> now what? Now what do I do? Now that I can count every breath, what should I do? And she said that he leaned forward and said very fiercely, don't ever think that you can sit zazen. <laughs> That's a big mistake. Zazen sits zazen. So the you becoming you is really not about you. <laughs> it's not about your ideas of you. And actually, it's not about anything. It's all, dropping all the extra, all the extra that we carry around, who I should be, what my role is, what my responsibilities are. You know, oh, I'm supposed to be the bodhisattva. And here I am, like, you know, not able to do it. That's terrible. <laughs> I'm a failure. All of that stuff that can come up. It's like how to, uh, you know, it's not like, okay, now I'm, these are unwholesome thoughts. So I'm going to package them up and throw them over there and not think about them. It's, you know, that's just adding mud to mud. That's trying to wash away mud with mud. Right. In <laughs> yes, Sherry. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying this very much. I just wanted to remind you uh, one time we were sitting and, I, and then you gave a Dharma talk and you read a poem. Poems seem to kind of point to the ineffable, the indescribable. And uh, it was by Derek Walcott. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it was called Love After Love. And, it, and it's pointing to being able to drop everything about yourself and to fall in love with yourself just for who you are. And if I could just read the first four lines, I think that really will point to it. <laughs> the time will come 
when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome. It's just lovely. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I have to confess, I, I almost never remember my talks. And I got, you know, 10 minutes from now, and maybe somebody will say something like, well, what'd you talk about? I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but that that's beautiful. Sherry, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that I said that in a Dharma talk at some point. <laughs> Rich, I see your hand. Hello. Hello, good morning. That was a really good talk. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to say uh, congratulations on your 17 years of being a priest. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, the, you said something about at, early in your search, you felt a yearning to take a vow. And I was wondering if I, I was, for some reason, I was thinking about your friend, Dawn, who's really, I, I remember one time I, she came to talk not so long ago and I um, went up to her on the front porch and I was going to ask her a question and she looked at me and I think she was trying, she thought I was trying to hit on her or something, but actually I just wanted to ask her a question, but she said, I'm all about the Dharma. And I'm like, wow, she's really committed. She's really vowed to do this. And I was like, really, I just wanted to know more about Gil Fronsdale. But anyway, so what had occurred to me was that, you know, having a friend like Dawn probably helped you to take your vow. Right. Did, is that true? Like having a spiritual friend like her, did she help you? And are there other people who helped you at that, at that particular stage? Yeah. I, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Rich. I think I felt helped by, um, well, you know, Don, Don in particular, um, she and I were good friends before either of us started practicing. And then when I started practicing, I ended up kind of losing ties with a lot of friendships in San Francisco because, oh, I went from being a... Mm, uh night owl kind of party person <laughs> who was used to going to bed late and you know getting up late to you know waking up at you know five in the morning and so uh you know don and i kind of lost touch with each other for and then i went to tasahara and it was only years later she contacted me out of the blue and she had started uh practicing herself um, after a bad uh, divorce. So something something brings us to practice. And she wanted to get in touch. And uh, thank you, Dave. She wanted to get in touch. And so I invited her to come, you know, during the summer to come stay with me at Tassahar. And we kind of reconnected there. And from that point, I think our friendship has been like when we get together, it's like, because she's in a different tradition and she's practiced in Zen and I've practiced in Vipassana, but like when we get together, it's just like, we do this kind of like, sometimes it can get exhausting, but <laughs> this kind of Dharma inquiry where we're like comparing and contrasting our practice and teachings and different things. And it's, uh, it's absolutely of uh, uh, incredible benefit. Spiritual friendships are the whole of the holy path. Right. 
I cannot say enough. Your spiritual friendships, the being with others, with the community members who also are on the path of practice is absolute. I, I, I mean, maybe it's not necessary for all people. Maybe if you're a, a Shravaka, you you don't need any <laughs> you don't need other people. <laughs> but for for me, being highly relational, uh, and for you know most of us. You know, just having having someone who, um, you know, encourages us and also calls us out on our shit when we're full of it, <laughs> right? Or just you know, questions like what what's going on with this? You know, uh, is absolutely uh, a huge part, uh, a necessary part of my practice. Right? So may all of you have those spiritual friendships. Well, I just I feel like. I have had that with you. I feel like we've been through some fun times. We've been through some hard times. We've yeah. been, we've had some laughs. We've had some like, ah, you know, and it's been up and down, but, and this is maybe a hard time, but I feel like we're going to get through it. And I feel like it's the spiritual friendship. That's important. Not the quality of the situation. Right. So. Absolutely. Rich. I, I feel like the spiritual friendship is, um, like zazen it you kind of everything is included in it and it's not like oh things are going well so i'm you know now you're my friend and now things aren't going well so now you're not my friend there's this deep trust and respect a mutual respect right which may not look you know the path structure may look different it doesn't have to you know you don't need, spiritual friendships don't need to be with with buddhists right <laughs> you have spiritual friendships with anyone who's got some practice in their life where they're um you know they're on a path that is about uh, finding their true self right as opposed to constructing something i mean you can get together with people and have all kinds of friendships about constructing things too those are also fun <laughs> But thank you. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll let her know that. Uh, yeah, it was, it's been good being with you all this time and with everyone, all the other people here. It's been good, you know, for the time that I've known you, it's been good. And uh, it's been a great thing to have uh, spiritual friends like you guys. So thank you. Rich. Well, I think that seems like a really lovely stopping point. Thank you all very much for your presence, your practice, and for your friendship.